there, and welcome to Shoot the Flick, an official Paradoja podcast. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. And we are a married couple who like to shoot the shit about movies. That we do. That we do. And this week, I introduced Scott to a bit of a, a cult 80s movie, I would say. I introduced Scott to Highlander. There can re- only be one. Released in 1986. And actually, this year, this movie is celebrating its 35-year anniversary. Ah, very on point. It's a movie starring Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery. Oh, yes. Good old Sean Connery. <laughs> who's in the movie for 20 minutes. Yes, and uh, he worked for all of one week and was paid a million dollars. Sounds about right for James Bond. This is one of those sci-fi flicks that I always wanted to see but never got around to till maybe like a few years ago. And I enjoy it very much. Scott, what were your first initial thoughts on Highlander? Um, Well, yeah, I'm the same way. I've always wanted to see Highlander before this. But overall, it was good. It was fun. It's a good concept that I think could be flushed out more. This is like prime real estate for a good reboot. Because, again, the concept here is really interesting. And I would love to see a mixture of... Highlander slash Bloodsport idea here. Yeah, the reason I say it's a cult film is because it completely bombed at the box office when it came out. It had a $16 million budget and it had a worldwide gross of $6 million. Despite that, though, it it does have several sequels and even a TV show so there is a fan base for it. And also it quite famously has one of the worst movies ever made in its sequel lineup, Highlander 2, which I have watched and it's not even worth watching. I I, I wouldn't even call it a so bad it's good. It's just it's bad and it makes no sense. So putting that out there, save yourselves. <laughs> but that's also why I think It is good fodder for a reboot. Scott and I tend to shit on reboots. But I think generally if it's a good concept, but maybe the original wasn't executed as well, and it has room to be updated, then there's reason for a reboot. The way you make a good reboot, in my opinion, is either, A, yes, the concept's good, wasn't executed properly, and then so you execute it better the next time around, or B... You go at it from a different point of view, like the reboot of Evil Dead, which took everything that was hokey and crazy about the original and just played it 100% straight. Yes. Uh, This movie was directed by a Mr. Russell McCauley. This was his first movie ever. He also directed Highlander 2, which I've already stated was a no-no. Also, he directed Resident Evil 3, which I've never seen, but Scott has a real affinity for (laughs) Resident Evil, don't you, honey? I love the games. The movies, after the first one, have all been dreadful. But Russell McCauley also directed several music videos, including Duran Duran's Hunger Like the Wolf, Elton John's I'm Still Standing, Total Eclipse of the Heart, and Video Killed the Radio Star. Video Killed the Radio Star. 
speaking of the music, <laughs> let's fucking mention the music in this movie. Um, there were several original songs written and performed for, for this movie by none other than Queen, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, Queen definitely came to play. There's a lot of fun music in this one. There is a weird arrangement of New York, New York. But besides that, everything else was pretty awesome. <laughs> and fun fact, there were other artists considered first before Queen was chosen, including David Bowie, Sting, and Duran Duran. Bowie would have made sense. Yeah, definitely. It's just a lot of like lofty rock ballads. It's fun. I love the music for this. It it it, it gets you so in the mood. Yeah, th- but there's because a- you're in the '80s and you're just like rocking it, and it's such an epic tale that it just it fits so perfectly. Yeah, it's a good soundtrack. It really is. The movie had three writers: a Mr. Gregory Wyden, Peter Bellwood. And Larry Ferguson. Larry Ferguson actually had a few interesting credits other than the Highlander series. He wrote Beverly Hills Cop 2, Hunt for Red October, and Alien 3. So he has a mixed bag. The story is really very interesting, which is, again, why I think it would benefit from a reboot. And Fun fact, I did look this up, and there is supposedly a reboot of Highlander in the works with the same director behind it as John Wick, which we also covered on this show. Yes, that is actually a very good choice. I know. I got so excited. I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's actually one of the best choices, especially if you're going to do... An action-y, packed, sword-fighting... Yeah, well, because he's a stunt guy, the director of yeah. John Wick. So there is a lot of sword-fighting in this movie, and I think it's really fun. But I think the guy that did John Wick... I mean, if you've seen John Wick, you know like the fight scenes in it are fucking incredible. So I think that would be amazing. His stunt work is A+. So, Scotty, are you ready to get into the nitty and the gritty? Yes, let us get into the nitty and the gritty... So we start off with some vague, lofty narration by Sean Connery. Yeah. But that is immediately improved by the entrance of the first of many kick-ass Queen songs. Here we are, born to be kings, we're the princes of the universe. And it really does set the epicness tone between the narration and the queen song we get the feeling that this is quite the epic tale a tale as old as time some might say yes definitely some might say that but we start in present day at a wwf match in uh madison square garden starring the fabulous Freebirds, which i don't know why they're in this movie I didn't even know who they were until you said that. I was like, oh, okay, they're actual wrestlers? Okay. Yeah, the three of them are actually one of the most famous tag teams in history. Why they're here, no idea. The whole crowd is going crazy, screaming, cheering, all that good stuff. And then the camera kind of zooms in on this one guy. Zooms? Who, whoa, 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 zoom. It's like a weird drone shot. It does look like a drone <laughs> shot, even though I don't think drones were a thing in 1986. But anyway, it, it zooms in on this one guy. 
who's very stationary and unfazed by the fight. And he's just randomly flashing back to little bits and pieces of some battle in the 1500s. We don't really understand fully what that's about just yet, but we're going to get there. But it's very mysterious, Scott. Yeah, we flash back to him, and he's there in the 1500s, which is also weird. So it's like, how are you in the 1500s, but you're also here in Madison Square Garden in 1986? Hmm, interesting, interesting indeed. So this guy, his name is Connor McLeod, and he's played by Christopher Lambert. He's a French actor, and if you don't know who he is by the name, he also played Raiden in the Mortal Kombat movie. Like the old one. But an interesting fact about Christopher Lambert's casting in this movie. Apparently, (laughs) before he did this movie, he could not speak barely any English. And the filmmakers didn't find out about that until after signing the contract for him to be in the movie. So that was an issue, apparently. And you can kind of tell... English is not his first language. <laughs> yeah, you definitely can. There, there are times he like says things and you're like, what? I mean, he has an accent and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just the way he says things, like the emphasis he puts on certain words. You can tell it's a bit of a struggle for him. But at the same time, I have to admit, I think Christopher Lambert is a very uniquely charming actor. He's one of those guys that, like, on paper, he shouldn't be charming or good at all. But he does have a certain charm about him that makes him very engaging to watch. He's got a uniqueness about him that would make him an interesting side character that it's odd seeing him as the lead. Yeah. But I feel like it works because soon enough we find out that Connor McCloud is immortal. He's been alive for thousands of years. And I feel like his look is kind of unique. So because the character of Connor McCloud is this, for lack of a better term, like this alien type figure. He's not actually an alien, but you know what I'm saying. He's like this strange one in a million type character that it fits. Like his look fits with the character. Yeah, I def- If that makes sense. Yeah, I, c- I could see that. So McLeod goes into the parking garage of Madison Square Garden and he is confronted by a man named Facile. And he clearly has met this man before because they greet each other by name. They know each other. And immediately they whip out fucking huge swords and start fighting in the middle of the fucking parking garage at Madison Square Garden. Which, how did Mr. McLeod, who was clearly in Madison Square Garden, Get a giant sword <laughs> past security. Well, this is 86, dear. The, the security is probably a little more lax back Even then. still. <laughs> Sir, is that a sword in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> but yeah, they have this sword fight. It's a pretty good sword fight. You can clearly tell there are times where they want to hide the fact that they're not trained sword fighters. Yes, that's. I would say that's true. However... Christopher Lambert did have some training with Olympic champion Bob Anderson, who was a sword master. And 
yeah, I mean, I think he did pretty good. I it was it was an engaging fight. Oh yeah, no, I'm for not, sure. I'm not saying it wasn't engaging. I'm just saying there's there's clearly sometimes they cut into like the shadows where you're like, that's clearly not either of these two men. They're brawling, and eventually Christopher Lambert gets the upper hand and chops Fasil's head clear off his shoulders. Yeah, I love that moment because it just establishes for the audience like oh shit like people's heads are getting chopped off in this like fuck so after Fasil is decapitated there's this powerful release of energy that just surges through the entire parking garage it it fucks with all the cars it blows out windows and shit it's crazy and this release of energy is called the quickening which is a bad name (laughs) it's a stupid name for a sci-fi thing the quickening it doesn't sound very epic at all but essentially what it is when one immortal kills another immortal so facile was also an immortal the deceased immortal releases this big surge of energy and that's what that was so after the quickening happens McLeod actually hears police sirens in the distance and he ends up hiding his sword in the ceiling of the garage and he runs off. He gets a good distance away, but unfortunately the NYPD detains him and decides to question him. And then after that, we get our first of many flashbacks of the movie. We flash back to 1536. I want to say Scotland. He's in the Scottish Highlands, see? He's a Highlander. There is a war about to be fought. A war that the McLeods must win to protect their lineage. And Connor is riding off into battle. Yeah, up till before the flashback, he hasn't really talked much, Connor McLeod. So in the flashback, you get a real taste of his voice for the first time. And it's clearly, it's one of those accents that doesn't sound particularly like it comes from any one place. It's just kind of like a generic foreign sounding accent. I came up with like the perfect analogy for Christopher Lambert while we were watching this movie. He's basically like, a Tommy Wiseau that can actually act. Like he's got this weird charm about him. He's got this weird accent that you can't really tell exactly where it's from. (laughs) And you don't know why you like him, but you do. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. But the opposing clan that the McLeods are fighting, you see them on the other side of the hill and they are being aided by a very tall and scary looking man named the Kurgan. And the Kurgan is played by Clancy motherfucking Brown. And if you don't know who that is, he's a well-known character actor and voice actor. He voiced the iconic Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob SquarePants. I don't care about the children. I just care about their parents' money. Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? (laughs) The Kurgan essentially says, listen, I'll help you win this battle, but you got to leave Connor McLeod to me. I want to get him. But because of that, when the battle begins, everyone's fighting, chaos is ensuing, but no one is going after Connor McLeod directly. It's kind of funny, actually, because 
everyone's literally running from him and Connor's just like why is everyone running away no one wants to fight me like he literally says that like what the fuck so he gets his answer as to why pretty immediately because the Kurgan approaches him and they go to fight and the Kurgan stabs Connor McLeod in the gut and he goes to decapitate him actually with his sword but before he can do that one of the other McLeod clan runs him off but Connor McLeod is fatally wounded the clan all thinks that he's dead and then we cut back to present day and Connor is in the police station being interrogated they pulled his id and he has apparently a fake id because they say that his name is russell nash they tell him that oh there was a similar death a similar decapitation death in new jersey two nights ago and it's funny because they mention new jersey a couple times in this movie and they mention it with incredible disdain because you know new york new york The chief of police is talking to one of his detectives. He's like, oh, you know, there was a death like this a couple nights ago in Jersey. But I didn't even think anything of it because, you know, New Jersey, who gives a shit? And I'm like, okay. Well, even they're questioning Connor at one point and they go, have you been to Jersey recently? He goes, if I can avoid it, no. (laughs) (laughs) The detectives interrogate Connor and they give him a bunch of shit. And they're like, you know, Nash, we, we know you're an antique stealer around here. And we found this old sword belonging to this guy Fasil that was murdered. So here's what we think happened. We think this was an antique steel gone wrong and you just chopped his fucking head off apparently. Yeah, you couldn't agree. <laughs> Over a money dispute. <laughs> and then he ends up being released because they really don't have any evidence against him. So next we meet Brenda. The beautiful Brenda played by Roxanne Hart. She is a forensic scientist that works with the police. She was actually the one that was examining Facile's sword and thought it was very suspicious because it seemed like it came from very, very long ago. But she does some more tests on it and she investigates the scene and she finds that there are shards of some kind of metal, which actually is the metal from Connor's sword, strewn about the murder scene. And she's even more suspicious of that because that metal, she actually predated it to like 600 BC. So she's like, what the fuck is going on here? Connor went to get his sword. So he was there when she discovers the fragments of his sword. So then he starts to follow her. Yeah, and they end up in this local bar and he <laughs> he's kind of a little creep. He's like, I'd like to walk you home. <laughs> And she, <laughs> and she blows him off. But she recognizes him, I guess, from the police station because she leaves the bar. And then when Connor leaves later on, she ends up following him. She follows Connor to this random alley because, you know, New York City at night, I guess, you know, where else are you going to be but an alleyway? <laughs> and all of a sudden, Connor turns into this alley and he is attacked by the Kurgan. What? The Kurgan from back in the 1500s? He's here in 1986. What? What craziness? What madness? He attacks Connor. But right as the fight's getting good, the, the cops come in like a fucking helicopter overhead. They just showed up. And just like, we lose them off, I guess. They well, just flee. But Connor 
yells at Brenda and he's like, don't fucking follow me. If you know it's good for you, stay away from me. And, you know, it's a woman in an 80s action-y movie. So that's automatically very attractive. <laughs> a very mysterious man who's kind of a bad boy. The women just get all soggy inside. <laughs> Moist. Ew. <laughs> Ew. Stop. Okay. So now we go back to the flashback to the 1500s. Yeah. And we go to a bar and Connor walks in. And they essentially accuse him of witchcraft because they're like, you were dead five minutes ago and now you're alive. What the fuck's that about? Demon! So the clan mobs Connor McLeod and wants to kill him. But one guy, one clan member named Angus comes to Connor's defense and says, no, no, let's not kill him. Let's just banish him. We don't have to kill him. So Connor is able to wander off through the Scottish Highlands in peace. And he eventually becomes a blacksmith and marries a beautiful woman named Heather. Yeah, he got fucked up here. He got beat up. He got ripped. He got tomatoes thrown at him. It was fun. After his exile and his eventual rebuilding of a life with his wife, Heather, they are rolling around in the hills, you know, living life, being in love, young love, you know, all that good stuff. And suddenly a, a flash of thunder erupts. And I don't really know how this happens, but just randomly a man on a horse just shows up. <laughs> and it's Sean motherfucking Connery. Yes, he plays the character by the name of Ramirez. And it's not really made clear where he comes from or how he got there, but he's there. And he's there looking for Connor McLeod because he needs help. He is another immortal who wants to enlist Connor McLeod's help in eliminating the Kurgan. Connor McLeod is very confused by all of this. He's like, what the fuck are you? Why are you here? What do you want with me? And Ramirez essentially exposits all the exposition that Connor and the audience need to know. <laughs> Ramirez explains that both he and Connor are born immortals and there are a certain amount of people in the world who are born immortals and they are destined to battle each other in what's called the gathering and that one person that one immortal that is left standing wins the prize quote unquote. What is the prize, you may ask? The prize is not really explained fully what it is. Ramirez basically just says that it's the power of all the immortals through time. It's very vague. But McLeod is just like, listen, I, I want to have a quiet life. I want to have a family with my wife. And Ramirez is like, well, unfortunately, us immortals can't have children. So... Too bad, so sad. And Ramirez is like, listen, I've been alive for like 2,000 years and I had three wives and they all died and it caused me a great amount of heartache. You should just leave, Heather, because you're destined to be heartbroken at the end of this. And it's really kind of a, a sad concept that like this immortal guy finds this woman he loves but he will never age and she will just grow old eventually and die. Well, yeah, this has been a concept that has been portrayed in many places. Uh, Lord of the Rings is another place that it gets talked about with uh, Eowyn being in love with Aragorn 
and Aragorn will eventually die of old age while she will continue to live on. And yeah, it's a sad thing when you think about it, when you get to watch the person you fall in love with grow old and die and you're going to live for another thousand, two thousand, or however long. Also, I want to bring up, Sean Connery says at one point that he is Egyptian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he originally says he was from Spain and then he's like, well, I'm actually Egyptian. And it's like, okay, you're neither of those things. Why are you, why are you Spanish or Egyptian at all in this movie? You are a white man. Can we stop it here? Let's just stop. <laughs> but essentially, Ramirez says that he wants to train McLeod to fight the Kurgan because he explains that if someone evil like the Kurgan wins the prize, humanity will suffer an eternity of darkness. Ooh. Which you're like, oh, oh okay, um, sure. And they go through this whole montage where it starts with them rowing to the middle of the lake and Connor's like, I can't swim. And Sean Connery just like pushes him into the lake. Help me, I'm drowning! You can't drown, you fool! You're immortal! Christopher Lambert also calls Sean Connery a haggis because, you know, he's Scottish, so <laughs> haggis is a thing. And then Connor responds by telling Lambert that he has the manners of a goat. <laughs> yeah, I've never had haggis. I haven't either. And I don't want to. Yeah. Just the description of sheep's stomach with like meat inside it and... And spices. Yeah, no. I'm, like, I'm not about that life. Thanks. I'm okay. During this training montage, Ramirez also explains some other little expository nuggets to McLeod. For example, the immortals can only die by beheading. They cannot fight each other on holy ground. Because that's always a thing. Yeah, it is. It's kind of a tropey thing, I guess. Hocus that kind of pocus. Thing. Yeah. Oh, I love how you bring up hocus pocus as like a harbinger of tropes. This movie actually has a lot of weird similarities to Rocky. Oh my God. Yeah. And uh, it's so weird. Like during this montage, there's a point where they're running along the beach. Yeah. And I'm like, this is Rocky Free. Yeah. It definitely gives off like sci fi Rocky vibes. It's weird. <laughs> One night, while Connor is away hunting, Ramirez and Heather are just hanging out in the McLeod home, and they're just chatting, having a wonderful time, and then all of a sudden, the Kurgan shows up, and he attacks Ramirez, and they have this really epic fight where, like, little by little, they're just destroying the McLeod home. Like, it's just breaking down brick by brick. Okay, there's a few things about this fight that I want to bring up. First off, there's a lot of weird things in, when they have fights in this movie, like where he cuts the Kirkin's neck here, and the Kirkin's bleeding. I'm like, go for it, just keep going, just, <laughs> and then like they'll back off. I'm like, no, just just go finish the job. And there's a point where the Kirkin is swinging his sword into the brick of the McLeod house, and suddenly the bricks will blow inward, and it's kind of just a funny look when you see it. You're like, I understand you can't hide the explosives on the inside, but the bricks should not be coming the <laughs> way the sword is swinging. The opposite way. It's yeah. like it's like when you slap someone and they turn into the, the uh, slap. Other way. <laughs> Eventually, they get to like the very tippy top of this crazy mass of rocks, and it kind of reminded me of the penultimate scene in Snow White where the evil witch is hanging off the edge of the cliff. <laughs> but unfortunately, the Kurgan does chop off Ramirez's head and he falls 
to his death. And you just hear Heather at the bottom of the cliff kind of screaming her head off. Actually, he gives a great line here, Clancy Brown. Right before he cuts off his head, he goes, Tonight you sleep in hell. Between the fight itself and the ensuing quickening that happens, which is the big burst of energy after Ramirez is dead, the house is a complete devastation. The Kurgan, you think he fucks off, like runs away for a second, but then you see Heather kind of looking for him, looking around. And then all of a sudden, his arm kind of pops out of the frame and grabs her neck. And you're like, oh, shit. But then the scene cuts. And you're like, what what, what happened? (laughs) And then you cut back to present day. And you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) What happened there? Yeah, well, we get a a shot of Connor McLeod's new home. Which, goddamn, man. Oh, yeah. He's got one of them two-story fancy apartments that... I feel like in 80s movies, no matter what job the protagonist seems to have... They always just manage to have a cool-looking apartment. And, okay. And this guy's an antique dealer and has this yeah, two-story apartment. Yeah, I mean, at apartment. least antiques, that's kind of a lucrative business, I feel like, right? I guess it could be, especially when, you know, you have a million-dollar sword hanging around. Yeah, and I mean, you've been alive for a bajillion years. I imagine you've saved up some moolah. <laughs> so he's in his apartment. He hears a little commotion downstairs, and he goes down to find Brenda bugging his secretary and brenda ends up confronting him about the weird sword that was found at the crime scene and about the fight that he had with kurgan and they're like a little bit flirty and she basically just asks him out and he's kind of standoffish but he does accept the invitation to come to dinner yeah it's kind of just like a weird scene And then after that, his secretary, Rachel, goes up to him and she's intrigued by this little interaction that he had with Brenda. And she's like, you know, you got to stop walling people off. You got to let yourself love again. And it's a cute little moment. And they expand their relationship a little bit because they they go to another flashback. But this time, McLeod is in World War II and he's fighting in World War II and he ends up in this random warehouse and he finds this little girl and her name is Rachel so you find out that his secretary slash assistant at the antique shop is actually basically his adopted daughter who he saved as a young girl in World War II yeah after he saved her by killing a Nazi move nine Erst musst du mich <laughs> whatever you say Jack you're the master race you, you gotta love a movie that just shoots the fuck out of Nazis. Well, you can't go wrong there. Again, the greatest villains in the history of the world. McLeod ends up going to Brenda's apartment for their little date. And you see before she answers the door that Brenda is secretly recording him. And also hiding a gun. Oh, yes. <laughs> you think she's all slick and stuff, but McLeod immediately calls her out on her bullshit. They get in there and they're like still flirting a little bit. And he's like, so what do you do for a living? And she's like, oh, I work for the Museum of Natural History. I'm a museum curator. You know, she thinks she's fooling him and being all stealthy with him. But he had actually brought her a gift to this date. She opens the present and it's a book that she wrote on ancient weaponry and she's like you fucking bastard you know who i am (laughs) why are you asking me that he's like oh i thought you were a museum curator but it says in that book that you work for the police (laughs) 
<laughs> and she's like, I'm not working for them. And he's like, oh, really? Then why is there a uniform outside? And why are you recording me? <laughs> and that causes him to leave and yeah, storm out. He, he thinks she's setting him up and he ends up storming out. Then we go back to the olden days with McLeod and Heather. They've rebuilt their lives and they are still living in wedded bliss for years and years and years until Heather actually does die of old age. He stayed with her for years and years because he loves her. And it's really sweet and it's sad because she dies in his arms and it's it's sad. It is. <laughs> but he ends up marking her grave with his McLeod clan sword and he adopts Ramirez's katana sword that he used which is the sword that he still uses in the present day it's the one he hid in the ceiling and Ramirez mentioned earlier that it was made in 600 BC which is where the metal shards that Brenda found come from it's all coming together kids it's all there (laughs) but we cut back to present day yeah so we meet a friend of his another immortal we don't really find out much about him yeah, just that they knew each other in the 1700s. Not long after they part ways, Kurgan ends up finding this friend. It cuts to them fighting in an alleyway in the middle of the night. And the Kurgan cuts his head off and that's the end of that. It, it's kind of like a throwaway thing. It was basically just put in there to give Kurgan another person to kill. Yeah, and also Clancy Brown is just hamming up this whole movie. Oh, yeah. It's it's really great because it's a buildup. You see in the beginning in the 1500 scene, like he's he kind of gives off the strong silent type. But then as you see him pop up throughout the movie, progressively, he gets crazier and crazier. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's particularly intimidating. I don't know if that's the word I would use. At times it is. But a lot of times it's just fun. <laughs> it's just funny and silly. And you know Clancy Brown is having a grand old time. Oh yeah, he's just, he's just all over the place. But meanwhile, while this is going on, Brenda is investigating Russell Nash, who's really Connor McLeod, obviously. And she ends up finding evidence that he's lived for centuries. And he's faked his death a few times over the years. Yeah, it's funny because she gets this guy to like compare the handwriting and he goes, clearly he's been alive since at least the 1500s. I'm like, that's, you should I love be... how that's your first conclusion. Like, <laughs> Even if this is the case, this guy straight as an arrow like reads this. Dude, you should be... Fr- There's a guy right. who's been alive since the 15 fucking hundreds? Yeah. Brenda just does a quick line of like, that's impossible. But like the guy that's talking to her and giving her this evidence, he doesn't really seem that shocked by this. Like it's just in every... Like, I, you know, this is kind of a huge... Yeah, this is just Tuesday for me. This is kind of a huge revelation. And it's funnier because Brenda in the last scene that she had with Connor says to him, no, I'm not setting you up for the cops. I just want to know more about what's going on here because the metal I found at the scene was dated in 600 BC and this could be something really crazy and I could get notoriety for discovering something incredible here and da 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 Like she's just out for herself. And it was even because Connor turns around when she says that. He's like, 
don't you think about anything else other than what you want? His Some of his line reads are really rough. <laughs> there was one in particular in that scene that you brought up. He finds the gun that she's hiding in the drawer and he picks it up and he's like, I love this place you have here, Brenda. <laughs> it's like, oh, geez. But like, I'm still on board with him, though. I got to say. He's got like a weird smile on his face. He does have a weird, yeah. Oh, God. It just works somehow. I don't know. It's goofy. You got to buy into it. For sure. That's like most sci-fi, I feel like, though. I think the premise is better than the movie. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Although I do like the movie a lot. <laughs> so Connor goes to the church. He goes to light a candle oh, for yeah. Heather yeah, he on go- her birthday. Yes, because he promised he would do that every year for her birthday it's very sweet it is very sweet but who comes strolling in but the kurgan this this is like the height of his fucking craziness is eating all the scenery oh yeah and he's messing around with connor he goes uh you know after i killed ramirez and raped his woman uh it was a great day for me it hits you like a fucking truck that line because you're like wait what connor was like you you could see the look in his eye because he grabs oh he's like Oh, so that wasn't Ramirez's woman. That was your woman, and she never said a fucking word to you. It really is like, ooh, it, it, yeah, I love that part. It really hit you good. And he, he reacted really well, Christopher Lambert. You could see it in his face how it was actually very subtle. I know we've been talking a lot about how wacky and silly this is at parts, but this was actually a subtle kind of moment, and it was a little, a little scary. Yeah, so he, he grabs the Kurgan by the throat. And the Kurgan's like, uh, 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 holy place, we can't fight here. Ah, okay, Mickey. <laughs> uh, I don't want to get angry in this uh, holy place. Another Rocky Two connection. <laughs> so Connor ends up storming out. The Kurgan stays behind, and he's like laughing obnoxiously and fucking with the priest. And he ends up eventually storming out himself, and he, <laughs> he leaves shouting out one of the more iconic lines in the movie, he just shouts out, I have something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away. When he says it, it's a famous lyric. I think it's in a Neil Young song, but it's also in a Def Leppard song. It's very uh, hamtastic, let's put it that way. And I don't know if we mentioned it before, but speaking of iconic lines... The obviously most iconic line that I'm sure everyone's heard at one point or another is, there can be only one. Yes. And that's brought up several times in the movie. Scott actually did a count because <laughs> he he was wondering how many times that I would actually come up in the movie. Well, in the first like 10 minutes of the movie, it said three times. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, are they going to say it more? Like how many times are they going to say this? So I counted it. It ended up being six times throughout the movie. Which is still... Yeah, it's It's kind of a lot. There and can be only one. Yeah, it's kind of a... It's become a more... Probably more infamous line than the actual movie itself. Because it has been referenced a few times in other things. But after Connor leaves the church, he goes back to his home. And Brenda's there. And she confronts him about everything she's found out. And he explains who he really is. But he does it in a very unique way scott would, would you like to explain how he shows brenda 
his immortality. Yeah, he goes, I'm an immortal. Here, take this knife and let me grab your hand. Oh, stab into the stomach. <laughs> and she like freaks out and he falls to the ground. But he's fine. And he heals right back up. So she realizes like, oh, shit, he really is immortal. Oh, wait, you're really handsome. <laughs> and then suddenly they just start making out. And then they fade right into a sex scene because, you know, why not? <laughs> There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than traumatic counseling session that will need to happen after I stab somebody. Well, that's what the the fucking was for, Scott. That was the counseling session, okay? (laughs) I didn't know fucking was the counseling session. But, like, if you really think about it, I mean, if someone came up to you and was like, I'm immortal, you wouldn't believe them. You would need proof. And what better proof than to stab them in the chest (laughs) and make sure that they don't die? No! I mean, how else are you going to find out if they don't die? (laughs) There's got to be a better way. Okay, well, let me know when you find out what way that is. And when we meet an immortal someday, if we don't find out a better way by then, then I'm stabbing the shit out of that person. Yeah, but if he's not immortal, then he's dead. Well, that's his own fault for telling me he was immortal. He shouldn't have did that. (laughs) We just got dark on this podcast. (laughs) So after their lovely night together, the next day, Connor and Brenda, for some reason, end up at a zoo. Another Rocky Two connection, which is bizarre. They have an emotional scene in a fucking zoo where Connor, without ever really going out with her, just, you know, having a one night stand with her, says, listen, I know we had a wonderful night together in the throes of passion, but we're not going to be hanging out anymore because I, I just can't. I can't fall in love again. I can't open myself up to that. Mr. Lyon, you are not invited to the <laughs> wedding. <laughs> Oh, I just thought that was so weird because we literally just watched Rocky 2. And not only did it have a a passionate dialogue scene in a church, but it also had an emotional romantic scene in a zoo. Hey guys, quick break from the main show here. Just wanted to take a minute to shine a light on some other podcasts that Scotty and I really enjoy. Check it out now. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage, where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming, and classic films as well. Directors and actors, beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it you always talk? All the time, I can't understand I why. This, the voice voice this is the Merman, the voice of reason. These two can't agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are Mondo, some are just... Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel the rage. Welcome to I Hate Your Taste in Movies. I'm Jackie, and I love action movies, but I really hate horror movies. I'm Jen. I love horror movies, but I just can't stand musicals. And I'm Austin. I love all things musical, but I absolutely hate action movies. Join us each week as we share our all-time favorite movies with our friends who will just rip them apart. You can listen to us, I Hate Your Taste in Movies, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at I Hate Your Taste and on Instagram at Hate Your Taste Pod. 
Join us as we put our friendship to the test every week and learn surprising things about each other. Like how Austin saw the movie Pitch Perfect in theaters 12 times. Which is perfectly acceptable. Or how Jackie played with oil cans as a child. Normal childhood behavior. Or how watching a zombie movie makes Jen want to eat chicken wings. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. We release new episodes every Tuesday. And for the record, I hate your taste in movies. Pretty much directly after they part ways, Brenda goes back to her apartment and the Kurgan shows up and kidnaps her in order to draw McLeod out. And somehow Clancy Brown is getting even more hammy. Oh yeah, he's got her in his car, in his passenger seat, and he's like driving like a maniac mocking her for screaming and like shit. a ham and cheese on rye oh boy he's he's going all out i feel like there's really no reason for this scene they just have clancy brown erratically driving through the city cars are crashing around him and i'm like you know it's an 80s movie well he also so of course we have to have a car chase of some kind well he also runs over a few people is singing New York, New York, which this is how we get the Queen version of New York, New York. Now, Scott, as we're getting into the climax of climaxes here, yes, I think now is the most appropriate time to get into one of our favorite segments, an oldie but a goodie, the cast Kunabins. Have some interesting cast could have beens. I'm excited. Okay, let, it kind of weirds me out though because there are some significantly bigger names that were considered for some of these roles. So I feel like maybe budgetary reasons kept them from getting some of these people. Though, maybe because they didn't have quite the biggest budget. I don't know. But in the <laughs> same breath, if you got some of them, maybe you would have got a bigger budget, and maybe we could got, got more some more money? butts and seats. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? So first, we've got Brenda. Some big names that were thrown around for the role of Brenda in this film include Lorraine Bracco, Glenn Close, Linda Hamilton, Diane Lane, Demi Moore, Sigourney Weaver, and Sean Young. So basically, any female badass bitch that was big in the 80s and early 90s is present here and was considered for this role. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, what irritates me a little bit about Brenda is that, I mean, she's not the worst female character in a movie for sure. Because she is established in the beginning as this very intelligent, very savvy woman. But the issue I have going into the climax of climaxes, which we will get to in a hot minute, is that she is reduced to typical damsel in distress. Uh, She's just screaming loud and hanging out and being captured. It's like annoying. (laughs) Yeah, I honestly thought who should have played Brenda is the same girl who played Heather. Yeah, you mentioned that. I thought that was an interesting thing i thought that would be very interesting because a you could always argue the reincarnation kind of thing would be cool but like i feel like that would have been a cool concept that 
they were destined to be together yeah. regardless. Yeah, that would add another layer, I think. Next, let's talk about Ramirez. We have some other more older distinguished gentlemen who were considered for the role, including Clint Eastwood, Malcolm McDowell, Gene Hackman, and my personal favorite, Michael motherfucking Kane. <laughs> yeah, they definitely were going for like an older actor. Yeah, they were definitely trying to go for like wise old man, but with a little extra something something, I think. Well, what I do find funny about Ramirez just in general is like they have Christopher Lambert, who's a French actor, playing a Scottish man. However, they have Sean Connery, who actually is Scottish, playing an Egyptian slash Spaniard. <laughs> We're not quite sure. And it's it's he didn't even try to hide his accent. Like he might as well have been fucking James Bond running around saying pussy the whole time. Pussy. Pussy. I literally just did that so I could put in the compilation of Sean Connery saying pussy. <laughs> well, on that note, Sean Connery has never, ever hidden his accent. In Hunt for Red October, he's playing a Russian submarine captain. Oh, really? And he, he just has a fucking British accent. Okay. So he's never you go, girl. <laughs> that accent. So last but not least, we have Connor McLeod. And there are several actors that were considered for this role, like Kevin Costner, Mel Gibson, and um, I would say by far the strangest one. And this isn't actually confirmed by anyone but him. Hulk Hogan was supposedly offered the role. And turned it down to focus on his wrestling career. My instincts, because Hulk Hogan is a piece of shit, it makes me want to discount that. But the fact that there was a wrestling match in the beginning of the movie with actual wrestlers in it makes me think it might be true. <laughs> 1986 Hulkamania is still one of the biggest things in the fucking world. Right. His movie career kind of faltered. In every way possible because, let's face it, Hogan can't act. Well, yeah. I mean, you can count on one hand the amount of people that come out of the WWE that can actually act. The Rock is obviously the, the gold standard. It and then, like, you can maybe say John Cena. Well, I think a lot and of... And that's about it. <laughs> Batista's done pretty well for himself. Oh, true. I didn't think about Batista. Uh, Austin's had a couple of fun roles. He's not great because he's he's stone cold and everybody knows he's stone cold. Are you serious? He's got some fun roles. Okay, but again... Bonesaw with Macho Man. Okay, that's not... But I'm talking about like real role, like real, you know... I think... Bonesaw was a wrestler. He's not exactly going outside the box on that one. So we didn't get that big name bringing the big bucks to this movie. We We got what we got. So, with that being said, that was The Cast Cudabins. So, now we're back to the plot. The climax of climaxes is approaching. It is. When Connor McLeod gets a message from the Kurgan explaining that he has taken Brenda and to meet him at Silver Cup Studios in Queens, he goes to his, his secretary, assistant, Rachel, and he says goodbye to her and he says, I I'm not coming back. I'm either going to die or I'm going to fucking be the most powerful immortal in the land. <laughs> Whatever the fuck that means. 
Yeah, because I actually don't really <laughs> even know what the prize yeah, is. Yeah, we still don't really know what happens if he's the last man standing. Because in the church, we forgot to mention that Kurgan does mention that he and Connor McLeod are the last two immortals standing. So it's mano a mano now, bitch. McLeod shows up at the studios. He sees Kurgan has Brenda tied up on some, like, scaffolding on the neon sign for Silver Cup Studios. McLeod is climbing up the scaffolding. And as he's up there, Kurgan pops up and they start fighting. And it's this really fucking epic sword fight. But the whole fucking time, as I mentioned, Brenda is just tied to the fucking proverbial railroad tracks, screaming and making a ruckus. And it's like, bitch, you're a smart, independent woman until now. And then you just turn into like a fucking flopping, inflatable arm, flailing tube man. It's like, fuck, man. Okay, fine. In the same breath, these are two immortals fighting. What good is Brenda gonna fucking do? In the midst of their sword fight, the signage falls over and Brenda is able to get loose of her bindings. They end up inside the studio. And there's like some really cool looking shots in there because it's just big windows behind them and it's just washed out in this blue light. It looks very cool. And the choreography is great. Kurgan is able to get the drop on McLeod gets him on the ground and is about to hack at him with the sword when Brenda comes around in her one golden moment and whacks him on the back of the head with like a pipe or something. (laughs) It doesn't really hurt him. It kind of just distracts him long enough to get McLeod a chance to get on his feet. Kurgan is about to swing at Brenda and kill her and at the last second McLeod comes back with his sword, blocks him he goes, <laughs> what kept you? Basically, as they continue fighting, he gets a shot and cuts off the Kurgan's head. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty sick shot because it takes him a while to fall. He just stands there for a second with his throat slit. And then his neck slowly opens up and you can see the energy from the quickening kind of coming out of his neck. And we go into the quickening part of the death here. And... It's not good. <laughs> no. There's, it's the hugest one because it's the last one, you know, before the prize. So it's a, it's a huge moment. And the special effects in this huge moment are very, very bad. It looks like a fucking cartoon, but you're able to kind of let it go for the moment. At least I am. I don't know about you, but. It, it, it's fine. I, I, I get it. It's the 80s. It's a, it's <laughs> It's a low-budget movie. So the quickening happens. Light and energy is surging everywhere. And then all of a sudden, McLeod falls to the ground. And Brenda runs to him and they embrace. And you cut to basically the epilogue of the story. McLeod has won the prize. He has won the day. He is the one. (laughs) And his prize is he gets to live a normal life? Well, in the epilogue... Connor McLeod basically explains what the prize is because now that it has been bestowed upon him, he knows what it is. So he says he basically knows everything. He can read people's minds and emotions. He's quote unquote at one with all living things and he hopes to use this power to benefit humanity and bring world peace. He's a regular old beauty pageant contestant. What is the one most important thing our society needs? 
That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And world peace. Uh, hey, he's basically Superman from Quest for Peace. Yeah. Basically. Taking away all the nuclear weapons from the countries. Right. So... Connor and Brenda end up going to Scotland together and they're in love now and they're together and life is wonderful. They kiss. And he also mentions that because he has won, he is now not an immortal anymore. He is mortal and he can actually have children now. And we end the movie with Ramirez's voice kind of echoing, basically encouraging him to use his power for good and not to lose his head. Ha 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 ha. Get it? Because you can only die from decapitation. So it's funny. It's it's hilarious. And that's Highlander. That is Highlander. This ending, as much as like I get it, I understand, I don't like that that's the prize for these immortals. Why? What did you want them to get? A fucking roll of tickets from Chuck E. Cheese? Like, what do you want? You could have just made it like a wish. Any wish you fucking want. I don't understand, like, oh, now you're mortal and you just kind of have infinite knowledge of the galaxy. There you go. I get what you're saying. I guess the the only reason I can see why they did it the way they did it is to kind of give it a more epic type feel of, like, this is something that can affect the entire universe i i guess but i just i just don't understand like if again like if this is the prize why would these guys fight like there's no well because they don't know what it is exactly i guess because they They just know it's something epic that can help save the world or whatever i guess i don't know it it, it just seems weird i think it's interesting because i i feel like what you were saying like oh just get a wish and you can have whatever you want maybe it's more the obvious choice what they did is maybe a slightly off the beaten path choice that does have certain implications that can potentially be explored in future movies. Yeah, I guess. Do they explore them in future movies? You saw the second one. Um, does it expand well, on this at all? <laughs> they don't explain anything in Highlander 2. If you it, actually, lo- it actually goes back on certain things that are done in this movie, which is annoying, but that's neither here nor there. This movie, I think, is... Really, really good. I had a fun time watching this again. I have it rated a four out of five stars. Lambert is a surprisingly good leading man, despite his awkwardness. (laughs) I really do like the story a lot. And if this reboot does happen, I will be down to clown. But Scott, what did you rate Highlander? So I enjoyed it as well. I enjoyed... Clancy Brown's craziness. It was a fun movie. Uh, I got to laugh at parts. So I gave it a 3.5. Overall, yeah, it was a fun movie. I really wish this was a movie where you know all the contestants beforehand and all of them, you have like a little backstory of like a bunch of them. Like Suicide Squad, where their stats pop up in the beginning of the movie (laughs) with every introduction. Not quite like (laughs) Suicide Squad, but more like, again, Bloodsport does it, where you kind of have like a backstory to these guys. Like they all have little things that you like, you know about them and you kind of care about everybody. And also, hypothetically, if you have a moment where at the end, where Connor, who is our main guy, has to turn and then like him and his friend take down the Kurgan and have to turn and face each other now for this grand fucking prize oh yeah we didn't even that's interesting you mentioned that because earlier in the movie where ramirez is training connor 
Connor mentions that to him. He says, so what if it's you and me at the end and we're the last two standing? Are you going to kill me? And he just avoids the question completely. And he's like, oh, let's run down the beach. <laughs> yeah, like that's that's a- it's a, that's but see, that's an interesting concept. Like, that's an interesting thing that you could do, like in a future movie or in a reboot or whatever. Like this whole concept of Highlander and the immortals and everything like it's an interesting world to like sink your teeth into like yeah, you can play with this so next week is a very special day especially for us irish it's saint patty's day and we're going to watch a very special movie for saint patty's day this year i'm so very excited about it it's not great but it's so very good if you know what i mean but until then this has been Shoot the Flick, an official Paradoja podcast. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. Make sure you check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Shoot the Flick. And check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. And make sure you come back next week for our Blarney Stone Green Eyed Movie Adventure. Highlander. There can be only one. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New 